And that in that relationship, you are ours. You are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are our everything. And Lord, we realize that if we are to make any difference in this world that we live in, we need you to work in and through us. We need you to take us out of where we're comfortable, take us into places that that we wouldn't go on our own unless, Holy Spirit, you were leading us and you were empowering us. And Lord, that is our desire. We want to we want to be used by you. We want to be used by you in great ways. Lord, I pray that every heart in here's desire is to be used by you in such a way that you get all of the glory because it goes way beyond anything we could do in and of ourselves. And Lord, we know that that is your desire to grow us into men and women that are willing, that are capable to do great things in your name. So Lord, do have that work in us tonight as we study your word. Grow us, transform us more and more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. How's everybody doing? I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm cold. <laughs> My Colorado blood is completely thinned out after being here all these years. I'm still orange, though. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Take out your Bibles. Second Samuel. Chapter 16, we got about halfway through the chapter last week. We're looking at this time in David's life and the time when his son Absalom is, is rebelling, is leading a rebellion, not just against his father, but against his father's kingship in Israel. We've seen, again, this even going back a little bit further with that, David's fall into sin with Bathsheba and then his repentance. But the consequences that come from that, we saw, again, Absalom then taking matters into his own hands, dealing with a brother who had a relationship with a sister. I mean, it's just a mess that we've been looking at. And we see that Absalom, when he was brought back, then and kind of restored a little bit that he started he was sit in the he would sit in the gate of the city and he would start talking with the people and and empathizing with their situation and convincing them that his father David didn't care about them but that if he was king he would care for them and he would take care of them and led these people and and got this 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 revolt going when word came to david instead of staying and fighting in jerusalem and risking the casualties of a war that would break out in jerusalem david flees and 600 people initially left with david and we looked at that last week as he is as he is leaving we saw that one man in particular sided with Absalom, and it was a former friend of David's, an ally of David's, Ahithophel, and the connection there, and it's going to come into play tonight, it's important that we understand Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather, and the shame that was brought upon their family and everything because of what David did, he never could get let go of that. 
He's been harboring this bitterness and anger and desire for revenge for over 10 years. It's just been growing. And we talked last week even in that, the roots of bitterness, they've gone deep in this man. As David then is, is leaving, if you'll remember, news came that Mephibosheth had, had, had turned his back on David. Not true, but it came through another source. And then, then at, further on down, this, this guy, Shimei, and kind of at the beginning of chapter 16 as we get there, comes out shouting out curses at David. David obviously going through an extremely difficult time in his life, but a time that the Lord said was going to happen. No doubt we can see through this a a disciplinary hand on David. And it would be David's son, Solomon, who would write later, Proverbs Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews would take those verses and expound on them a little bit more in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking of those fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed needed and best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our own good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet. To those whom have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Solomon no doubt learned those truths from first his father David. Then he would live them himself as he then would pen these words later. David learning these very difficult lessons now, not to hate the discipline that comes from the Lord, but understand that it comes from a loving God who desires nothing but the best for us, that we would grow in our relationship, that we would grow in holiness, and as we come to the end of that period of discipline, yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And if any of you have been through a season of discipline from the Lord, you know exactly what that is and what that entails. And just like the author says, no one enjoys it while they're going through it. David at this time isn't going, yes, I hope this goes on for a long time. But he understands it. Not once through this do we see him lashing out at God. We're going to see, in, in, as we go through this a little bit, there's, there are times that he wrote several psalms during this time, wondering where God was in the process, but never once lashing out, never once saying, this isn't fair or how come. <laughs> he knew exactly why. But even to the point of embracing it and understanding that through it, God was going to do a great work in him. Well, We pick up where we left off last week. Again, David has fled. He is gone from Jerusalem. Now Absalom, verse 15, it tells us, then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. There's that guy, Ahithophel. Now it came about when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now Hushai, if you were here last week, you know that he's a friend of David's who actually said, I want to come with you, David. But David said, you would only, you'd only weigh me down. He was an older man. 
and I don't, I couldn't, I can't take care of you, basically, is what he's saying. And he said, You'll do me better good if you go back and 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 go along with Absalom, and you can then report what is going on and, and, and that type of thing. So here, he's being obedient to what David had said. Now he comes up to his son Absalom, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend, meaning my father David? Then Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord... This people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Now, I think, I think there's a little, I don't know, tongue-in-cheek as he's saying that maybe, when he says, for whom the Lord has chosen. No doubt thinking, yeah, he's the one I'm still serving. <laughs> the one whom the Lord has chosen, that's David, and when he comes back, I'm going to be here to receive him. I don't know if that's what he meant by that. Sure seems like it to me, though. Besides, whom should I serve, verse 19, should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice, what shall we do? Now it's interesting, Absalom's first act as now quote unquote king, he gets to Jerusalem and he doesn't know what to do. He turns to Ahithophel and said, okay, what should we do now? You know, Absaloms are great rebellers. They're great sowers of discord, but they're lousy leaders. Absalom's not a leader. He, he, he was great at stirring everything up and saying, hey, when I make it a whole bunch of campaign promises, but now when he's in office, he has no idea what to do. And he turns to Ahithophel, and we see, look at verse 23 real quick. We'll come back to it in a moment. But the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was, if, was as if one inquired of the word of God. That's how high David first, and now Absalom looked at his words. And so Absalom's like, I have no idea what to do now. It was successful, but so what do we do? Here's his advice, verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Here's his first act as ruler, listening to the advice of Ahithophel. David left 10 of his concubines, his secondary wives at that time, to take care of things while he's gone. Ahithophel says, here's how you do this. You want to let everybody know your disdain towards your father and your complete separation from him, and this will galvanize your people with you. Go up on the roof and sleep with his wives in plain view of everyone. That was, that was his advice. That was Ahithophel's advice. Here's, here's your first act as king. Ahithophel didn't care about Absalom. He could care less about Absalom. This statement reveals his heart and his true intentions in all of this. It shows his hatred 
his bitterness, and his desire for revenge against David. And we see in this, and we'll see it play out as we go through this tonight, the, the, the fallout from a heart that is set on his own redemption, his own revenge. We, we look at this, and the first thing that we can see in it is that someone who has a heart bent on revenge is one that does not believe that God is going to be able to take care of it himself or does not trust God in it. And it's one that has a heart that says, you know what? God's going to be too gracious on them. God's not going to deal with them strong enough. So I'm going to take They would never say that out loud, but that's what his actions are saying, right? But in that in that statement, not only, not only is there a total misunderstanding of God completely, but also a total admission of, of absolute ignorance. His feeling is that God has not dealt with David strongly enough. He has no idea what David has been through. He has no idea the suffering and everything that David has gone through. Just as an example, Psalm 51 records this. It says, make, and this is part of David's repentance, if you'll remember. We looked at Psalm 51 when he repented of, of his sin with Bathsheba. It says, make me, hear, make me to hear joy and gladness. Net gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Speaking, he's t- calling out to God, the bones that you have broken Now, he was not speaking physically. It wasn't like he had physically broken bones. But he had gone through something that we can't completely understand. God had totally broken David. He had been through the loss of a child in all of this. He's been through many other things through this, and we we still can't even touch the spiritual and emotional anguish that David went through because, again, David is a man after God's own heart. David was a man who walked with God, and during this time, that separation from him, and we see him crying out in the Psalms with that. But this just shows someone who has a heart that is bent on revenge, not at all connected spiritually with God, totally missing that piece of it. And... The fallout, those that are caught in the crossfire of this, they don't care about any of that. The innocent people that are caught up in this act of revenge that he is taking, first of all, the 10 concubines, what did they do? Yet you're you're telling somebody to go and rape them, basically. In the sight of Israel, the people that are there, how are they affected? Doesn't care a bit about that. And that's another aspect of someone whose heart is bent on revenge. They don't care or think about the effects of other people. Certainly, we see that within him. Now, looking back just a couple of pages, if you were with us in this part of the study, this sounds familiar, that, that David's wives would be, that this would take place in plain view, and it should, because it was prophesied. Back in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Prophesied years before. Now, just because it's prophesied 
does not mean it's okay for somebody to go out and try to help fulfill the prophecy. This is not a, this, just because this is prophesied in verse 11 does not mean that it's okay for Ahithophel and Absalom to say, hey, Ahithophel maybe even heard this. He's saying, I know what you gotta do. We're gonna fulfill some prophecy today. Does not excuse that at all. God does not need our help fulfilling prophecy. It tells, the word says, be sure that your sin will find you out. That does not give us license to go sin sniffing and gossiping. Now we're just going to help God fulfill his word. I know they did it. I got to go and make sure I'm going to find you out. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Well, let me help you reap that what you sowed. God doesn't need our help. And by the way, never, never a good idea. I mean, the, the result of that person being involved in that, saying, hey, I'll help fulfilling prophecy, a lot of them, hey, we're, I'm good with. I can't wait when he calls us up and we go to meet him in the clouds. That prophecy I want to be a part of, you know, right? But there's a prophecy, Zechariah 11, Verses 12 and 13, Psalm 41, verse 9, spoke very specifically about Jesus being betrayed, that he would be, be betrayed by a friend, that he'd even be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver, very specific about it. So Judas, hey, fulfilling prophecy. Jesus said it would be better if he had never been born. Ahithophel, same thing here. Well, as I mentioned, it says the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was if one inquired of the word of God. Again, huge, huge responsibility here for Ahithophel. And to use that, that representation of God to dishonor him, which is what he does here. Many people have come across it. I've been in conversations with people, have that aura about them, that they, they, they speak the very words of God and then come with gossip or come with other things. So was the advice of Ahithophel regarding both David and Absalom. Well, chapter 17, furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. Here's a, another example or another illustration we see in this. Revenge is never satisfied. This is taken care of. He did this, Absalom did this in broad daylight, embarrassing David, humiliating his wives, this, this whole thing. He's still not satisfied. He wants to go after him. And he notice, he says, I want to be the one that takes his life. I want to be the one that kills him. Revenge, never, never satisfied. An eye for an eye, right? I mean, he did this. He, he had an inappropriate relationship with my granddaughter that brought shame on my family. Shame needs to be brought on his family. He murdered my son-in-law. He needs to die. Eye for an eye. Well, Jesus has a lot to say about that. 
The Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. An eye for an eye was part of the law that was given. It's repeated in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, a part of the law that God gave. But it was given to the courts, not to individuals. It was given to... It was given publicly, not personally, and it was given for the purpose of showing mercy so that people wouldn't go out and take more. It was meant to limit restitution, not legalize retaliation. (laughs) That wasn't the point of an eye for an eye. But so often that's what we use to justify our own revenge and and coming forward. Jesus is not doing away with that. He's speaking to us as individuals how we are to act. Government, different thing. Laws being taken care of. Again, there's, there's consequences for our decision in the society that we live in. But personally, Jesus says, don't overcome evil with evil, as Ahithophel is doing. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other. Peter put it this way, to sum up, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. There's something totally different. Ahithophel, instead of doing a, to come alongside and be a blessing to David, that's what we're called to do. We are called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. It speaks of, of the love that we are to have and the love that we are to share, and I understand that that is extremely difficult. And quite honestly, in our flesh, impossible. To forgive like that. To let go of bitterness. But Jesus, as he continued on in that teaching there, he talked about love. He talked about the fact that we are to love our neighbor. And that brings up the question, well, who's our neighbor? And somebody asked the question. And the bottom line in that is that that question shows our own heart. Because I don't want to love anybody I don't have to, so tell me who my neighbor is. Just so I can make sure I'm loving that person. And Jesus, Jesus did a different story, but circles right back around to it. Basically, he said, love your enemies. Love those that the world thinks is, is it, it's impossible to love. And we look at that again, we say, I can't do that. And we can't in and of ourselves. He goes on, verse 42 of chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 48, I'm sorry. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect? Yes. That's the bar. And again, we can't in and of ourselves. Like it says, it's, it's impossible, but it's him possible. It's not in and of ourselves. Where God commands and demands, he empowers and equips. The quote I love in this, it says, he says, you can't, he never said you could, but he can, and he always said he would. We let him living through us, loving through us, forgiving through us. Well, we see 
certainly not the heart of Ahithophel. He wants to go and bring David's head back. Verse four, so the plan pleased Absalom and the elders of the, and the, all the elders of Israel, all these that had turned to Absalom. How quickly now they've turned completely away from David, even to the point of pursuing and killing him. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. So he explains that we go pursue him right now with 12,000 men. Shall I carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. You think you're just going to overtake them and they're just going to run away scared and David's going to be left standing in the middle? Your dad's way too smart, smart for that. And the people that he's with are way too mighty in their, in their warfare to do that. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them at first attack that whoever hears it will say there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom and even the one who is valiant, those whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. It's going to fail. It's going to backfire. Your 12,000 men are going to come running back, no matter how proud and bold they are now, when they come face to face with them. But, verse 11, I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you, from Dan even to Beersheba, and that's a way of saying from the, all the way up in the north to all the way to the south, as the sand that is by the seashore in abundance, that you personally go into battle. And here we see some, some wisdom and an understanding of Absalom in this. Absalom is a man of great pride, and we know that. I mean, who else would weigh their hair? He's got, he's got this huge pride, ego problem. And here... Hushai is going to poke that a little bit. First of all, get everybody. Shock and awe. <laughs> I mean, you overtake David with just sheer numbers, but you lead him. You take him in. Don't let Ahithophel get the credit. You do it. So we shall come to him in one, verse 12, of the places where we, he can be found. And we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and of all of his men who are with him, not even one will be left. Don't kid yourself. These people aren't going to be loyal to you. They'll fight to the death for David, so we need to take them all out. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it into the valley. Not even one stone is found there. So, we look at that, we're thinking, some friend coming up with a plan like that. But verse 14, then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Here's the key though. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. If, if verse, the second half of verse 14 wasn't in there, I'd be thinking, are, are you crazy? 
David's men would certainly have a better chance against 12,000 led by Ahithophel than all the armies of Israel led by Absalom. But God has a different idea. God is working behind all of this. That was actually wise counsel. So if we step back and think about it, okay, it probably would have been. While David is still tired and hungry and running to overtake him then, probably would have been great counsel. But God is working behind the scenes to thwart that. And notice it says, God is working. God is working where we can't see. God is working where we don't know. And I mentioned this earlier. During this time, there are several psalms that are written by David where he cries out, God, where are you? How long are you going to keep silent? How long are you going to let me dangle here in the wind before you come and rescue me? How long? And sometimes, I, I love that that's recorded in here because that David feeling that, anybody ever felt that? In the middle of the, a deep storm or a difficult time and you're crying out to God and it doesn't seem like the answers are coming or it doesn't seem like he's there and you're like, how long, Lord? How long do we have to go about this? The fact of the matter is, he's working. He's working in areas that we maybe don't know or understand or see and might never see. If my God is for me, who could be against me? If he's working for me, what can, Paul said, what's, what's the worst man could do to me? What is it? God's for me. God's working it all together for good. There's many things that, that we just don't see, that we don't understand. Psalm 56, a psalm of David. When I am afraid. Are you ever afraid? The Bible tells us that we don't have a spirit of fear. But that doesn't mean that we never face things that frighten us. Those things happen. But when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in, God's whose, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. There's a natural reaction to things, but then when we put our trust in the Lord and we focus on him, the supernatural takes place. God working in the surroundings around us, even working in the natural world around us, but then that supernatural peace that comes upon us. Proverbs 21, verse one, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart. The king might think that I'm making the call, I'm making the decisions, I'm calling the shots, Absalom, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that advice. That's my brilliance. <laughs> That's God directing his heart for his purposes. In the, in the craziness of the world that we live in, is ISIS winning? Is ISIS in control? No. Almighty God is in control. Now, do the things that are going on in the world, do they frighten you? 
If they do, don't, don't freak out. Don't, don't, you're not sinning. That's a natural reaction. But we, like David, then say, all right, I'm going to trust in you, Lord. This, this stuff freaks me out. I'm going to trust in you. You're God. You're in control. You're working stuff that I can't see and I don't understand. I'm going to trust in you. And that peace comes over us. The story of Elisha and his servant. You know the story, maybe you don't. Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and he goes outside of the tent and Elisha's enemies had totally surrounded them. They found out where he was. So the servant comes running in. Wake up, Elisha. Oh my goodness, they're, gonna, they're, they're all around us. And Elisha's like, yeah, no big deal. What do you mean? They're, gonna, they're around us. They're going to kill us. And he, Elisha just prayed, Lord, would you just open his eyes for a moment and let him see? And he got to see the supernatural that we can't see just for a moment. And he saw the angel armies that were all around them. Cool, what's for breakfast? <laughs> that peace that comes over us. A third of the angels fell. Satan's army is big, but two-thirds didn't. <laughs> those, that, those, that are, those that are protecting us outnumber them. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Not just a little bit either, far greater Verse, verse 15, then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, remember these are the ones that also stayed behind and kind of part of David's network of getting information back and forth to him. This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. <laughs> and I can only imagine, hang with me. Because I, I know this is going to sound crazy that I told him to go get everybody and come after him, but this is going to buy you some time, and God's working in all of this. But here's, here's, the, here's this. Now, therefore, verse 16, send quickly and tell David, saying, do not spend the night in the fjords or the wilderness, but by all means cross over, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now, Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel, and a maidservant would go and tell them, and they would go and tell the king, for they could not be seen entering the city. So they were kind of hanging out on the outskirts, and the information would come to them, and they would go on. But a lad did see this was going on, and he told Absalom. So the two of them departed quickly and came to the house of, man, of a man in Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took a covering, his wife spread a covering over the whole of the well, and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman of the house and said, where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have crossed over the brook of water. When they searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. It came about after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, arise and cross over the water quickly. Thus, For thus Ahithophel has counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. So they've now even crossed over the Jordan River to the other side of the Jordan. Verse 23. 
Here we see the tragic end to a man filled with rage and desire for revenge. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, set his houses in order, and strangled himself. And thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Ended up killing himself when his, his plan wasn't the one that was selected. He wasn't going to get to go and finish off David. And no doubt probably realized that this was kind of his one and only chance. Probably realizing that David is going to succeed in all of this and come back and be king again. He knew Absalom was no leader. He knew Absalom was no king. Again, I've used this before, and this is kind of a graphic illustration of it, but bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And that's what is lived out here. This man who could, never, could not let go, he's the one who eventually, after leaving a trail of, of devastation, and that trail we will see as we continue reading gets even worse. But in the end, he kills himself. Verse 24, then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom set Amsa over the army in the place of Joab. Now Amsa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra, the Israelite, who went in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So this, that's a long way of saying he's related to Joab. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now, when David had come to Mahanaim, interesting, Mahanaim. The last time that we see this, this place mentioned is all the way back in Genesis chapter 32, and it's where Jacob came before he met with Esau, and it says that when he came there, he saw the armies of God. Remember that? before, And then he said, God dwells here. This is God's camp. This is the same place. I think that's kind of interesting. Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabah of the sons of Ammon. Now, we haven't been introduced to Shobi before, but we have been introduced to his brother back in chapter 10, who was the one who took over for the king. Son of Nahash. Nahash died. And David sent condolences to Shobi's brother, Remember, he sent the men, and they were the ones that they sent back. He, he ridiculed them by cutting their, their, their skirts off at, at thigh length and shaving off half their beard, remember, in, in that. So um, David goes and wipes him out. Shobi now, and we will see, shows great acts of kindness now towards David. And Makur, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Braz... Barzillai, the Gideonite from Rogalim. These, this, this Makir, he's the caretaker of Mephibosheth. He's one that we had seen before. 
But the point is, these, these people do show great kindness to David and these people in this time. And notice, verse 28, they brought beds and basins and pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd. For David and for the people who were with him to eat, and they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. These people noticed and, and realized that David left hastily, traveled a great distance. There's a large number of people. They didn't have all of these provisions, so they came out and they blessed David. And I think it's interesting that the Holy Spirit chose to record for us the list of stuff that was brought. It didn't just say that they brought provisions. It gets down to the details. They brought beans and lentils. And not just cheese, he even records what kind of cheese. Cheese from the herd, cow cheese. I mean, bringing it, I mean, breaking it right down to the details. Nothing, no detail is ever missed in heaven. No detail, nothing that we do for the Lord. What we, what we might think is insignificant, God thinks is a big deal. And he has a record of it. And we might think that, you know, that, that, that nobody sees. God sees. God sees and he makes a record of it. We're going to see in Matthew 25 this week or next when we get to that point where Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you came and visited me. When I was in prison, you came. You came. Like, when did we ever do that? Whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. They're bringing the, these men, and again, one that could, one that could even say, you know, I, I, have a, I have a bone to pick with David. You know, he, he killed my brother. Another one, Mephibosheth, this, this one, he saw David in his heart towards Mephibosheth. They come out and they're, they're just blessing. They're bringing what they have. Another thing, at times we say, well, I don't have a whole lot, but I'm willing to, to give it, I'm willing to let God use it. It's amazing what God can do when we just give him what we have. Again, he's not, he's not interested in, in the, the volume. He's interested in the heart behind what it is. All I got is five loaves of bread and two fish, Jesus. I don't know, what, whatever you could do with that. I don't know, feed 50,000 people. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, we're going to We don't have time to ch start chapter 18. All right. Got off on a couple of more rabbit trails than I thought. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again even though it's difficult to to see our hero David go through trials and difficulties and even your chastening, 
But Lord, I, I personally thank you for recording those things because so many of the, the trials and difficulties that we face, we can, we can look to your word and, and, and draw comfort from it. That even in times of chastening, we know that if we allow that to run its course and we, we walk in obedience through those difficult times that at the end of it, there's fruit of righteousness. Lord, in those times of, of struggle, in storms and in difficulties where we don't feel that, that, that your, your, your presence, and at times we can even doubt that you're there and the enemy would like to convince us that you're not, we know your promise says that you'll never leave us or forsake us and we can trust that you are working in ways that we might not see or understand at the time. But look, we know, Lord, that you are for us. And if you are for us, who could be against us? Lord, our prayer is that we would honor you in all of our actions, in everything that we say and do, but Lord, also in the very depths of our hearts. And Lord, if there is any, any bitterness, any unforgiveness in our hearts, Lord, would you Reveal that to us now, and Lord, we want to root that out deep, pull the roots out from the deepest that they are. We see the, the calamity that comes from it. We want to honor you, Lord. And what an amazing thing that you keep a record of everything. Every little thing. It's not little to you. And Lord, we want to honor you and in everything that we do in our lives, so have your way, Lord. We can't, and you never said that we could, but you can, and you always said that you would. Have your way in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you guys.